Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB archives. We've now figured out how to organize value and circulate yeah. it around now all the way down to these levels, retail levels. What have you got in your pockets? Bilbo had a ring. My Victorian characters often had a handful of silver. I used to carry around dollar bills for the candy machines. You you probably have credit cards, but I bet your kids have just got some handy-dandy app on their smart device. And if you go further back, classical world plutocrats stockpiled wheat. Sumerians had clay tablets that were basically labor IOUs. So do these form shifts matter? Um, Yes. And how do they matter? Welcome to the money season of uh, Recall This Book. Can we call it Recall This Book, Elizabeth? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is the first of a series of three, potentially more, conversations we'll be having this spring with historians of the monetary system and wealth and wealth accumulation. So I said three, but it may be four if we pull off a conversation with a certain famous French historian of capitalism whose name sort of rhymes with rickety. Um, (laughs) Notice that uh, we did not say a series about capitalism. So the next conversation, for example, will be with Peter Brown, who is author of Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West. No, the topic is really about changing conceptions of money and of wealth. And so we're really happy to begin the series today by talking with the brilliant and celebrated Christine Dazan of um, Harvard Law School. Did I say that? I said it wrong, didn't I? Dazan. Dazan. Thank you. You were close enough. Professor Dazan (laughs) teaches about the international monetary system, the constitutional law of money, constitutional history, political economy, and legal theory. And among many other things, she is the managing editor of JustMoney.org, a website that explores money as a critical site of governance. Governance. So we asked her in for starters, though we are heading places in this episode, to starters to talk about the overall argument of her amazing book, Making Money, which is about... Uh, in part, about how key ideas, as well as key objects, the actual pieces of currency, underlying the modern monetary system get invisibilized with that system's success, so that seeing money, like the money itself, is clearly both harder, but also more vital. So, Chris, welcome. It's great to have you. And so one way you've described your overall work is, quote, that your approach aims to open economic orthodoxy to question, particularly insofar as it assumes money as a neutral instrument and markets as an autonomous 
phenomena. So maybe taking that as our origin, can I just ask you to tell us about your book uh, make, that is making money for starters and, and how it does that? It's a great place to start. That is to say, you started us by pointing to the modern kind of norm of thinking of money as just something invisible or neutral or um, something we can put in a black box and leave. If you think about uh, that, both the people from the left side of the political spectrum and people from the right side of the political spectrum, spectrum so Marx to... Um, you know, uh, some conservative economists we might imagine, they all are in some ways black boxing money and thinking of it as neutral. So Mark said, oh, you know, you can think of it as gold. Um, economists today think of it as just a unit of account or medium of payment. Um, and oddly, ironically, they're sort of both in common setting money aside as instrumental. Um, and that means that we forget to kind of get inside money and ask what it is and what it actually, you know, what it takes for a society to set up a money um, and actually how those setups uh, of money, how money's design changes over time. So the book was really trying to denaturalize money, get inside the black box, ask how money designs have changed over time. And the big, the big transformation, which we can dive into if you like, is... Um, is the change to capitalism. So I became convinced doing this research that capitalism is uh, a society organized around a particular kind of money, that yeah. when money changed, when in particular the British changed their monetary design, they created the institutions we think of as capitalism, and mm -hmm. then it would go viral. So I really do want to get there, Chris, okay. but can you, can, can you satisfy the nerdy side of me that yeah. wants to talk about that early beginning stuff, like the idea? The medieval? Yeah, or yeah, the notion, uh, just a kind of conceptual notion of money as a time-flexible marker for resource yes. contribution. Uh, so mm -hmm. again, I think it's actually essential to talk about that, because until yeah. you think about what money is, you're not in the position to think about its design, right? So so if we ask what money is, so let me do the same thing I just did, which is start about, you know, think about for a moment the normal story and then think about, in my view, what really happened, right? So the normal story is one that teaches us to look away. There's nothing really interesting here. The normal story is as people engage in exchange, they're bartering all sorts of things. And gradually as they barter, you know, fish for salt and wheat for pigs, something that's easier to give and take rises to the surface. And in a lot of stories, it's silver or gold. Then we start passing around silver or gold as money. If you think about that story, there's nothing really to see, right? That is just a natural emanation of exchange that comes about when um, individuals are already engaging in economic activity, so money doesn't really change anything, and it's an inert object. And kind of modern versions of that often make it a convention. It's just a convention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, when you look at how money actually came about, it's not from private exchange, and it's not something inert. It's um, a project of a group that creates an, uh, a token with value because of the way they've reorganized obligations within the group. So in particular, to dive right in, I basically said it's a token that um, in which a group has installed value because of the way they've arranged their relationships uh, okay. around that token. Okay. So, okay. so here's imagine very concretely that you have this small society, and if it's a small society, maybe you don't have much money. You just have everyone contributing to keep the society going by contributing their labor. Mm -hmm. So everyone routinely gives a day of labor to the group. 
And that'll work unless there's some yeah. kind of emergency, right? Unless the coronavirus comes along yeah. and takes out half the population so that some people have to do twice the amount of work right. because mm-hmm. half the population's gone. Oh, my God, Elizabeth, didn't you have a horrible daycare you were in where you always had to give a day of work? Am I misremembering that story? I did, I but it like wasn't that... I thought it's like, only was like once of, a month or it something. It was okay, yes. right? Okay. We, we, Perfect. We, we ran yeah. away from one of those once because of that nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Like I know I'm going to be caught cleaning toilets I'd, five weeks in a row. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if no, you are right, if Elizabeth gets yeah. sick and you have to yeah. do twice the amount of yeah. work, right, right. you want it to be recognized somehow. Yeah. So right. say the, you know, the authority at, in the middle of this, or you know, it could be a group, it could be democratic mm-hmm. or dictatorial, whatever, says if you do while Elizabeth is sick twice the amount of work, we're going to, you know, you've done your regular contribution, but for the coming contribution that you did in advance, we're going to give you a token. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And next time your time for obligation to contribute comes around, you just give us back the token, Mm -hmm. right? And if you think about that, that token has value because, you know, the person who's holding it knows it's worth one quota of contribution. Right. 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 And, um, but that is a kind of unit of account. Then. It's a unit of account, yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. And the way we then add another um, role, say medium of exchange, is mm-hmm. that if, if I say to John, now he's he's got this token, it's a unit of account, in which, right. and he's going to give it back to me, it could just become a unit of account between between the authority and John. But if we want to make it a medium of exchange, we say, and John, you can give that to anybody else mm-hmm. for value. Right. And everyone knows exactly how much it's worth because it's worth one contribution. Right. Right. If he gives it to his neighbor in exchange for um, mowing, the lawn. mowing the lawn, then the neighbor can give it to the authorities yeah. in exoneration right. of their contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you step back and think about money that way, it makes an enormous amount of sense because the authority, whether it's the head of the daycare center or the head of this little group, you know, proto-government in, mm-hmm. in you know, an early medieval world, they have to mobilize resources. They have to have a way to organize people. And this is an ingenious way to do it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it makes sense for people within the society because they've suddenly gotten some unit that has a a known value that they can trade for things. And that's something easily assumed. We do it all the time, but actually very hard to achieve. So Mm -hmm. to have a commensurable unit that you can use as a medium, that you can use in payment, that's a breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just one thing, you know, when you're thinking about that system, it's also returning then to the authorities and showing my cards as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I am also interested in that because the authorities can then start and have an interest in enforcing the kind of exchange they approve of in that unit. So let's say people make mm-hmm. you know exchanges right. that they like, like you know for mowing your lawn, but they also make exchanges that they don't like, like prostitution or something. They're drugs. Right. And when a, when a society starts enforcing some transactions and refusing to enforce others, you know it's basically gaining a lot of power to curate right. the kind of exchange. Right. That's I going see. On. So we have a kind of microstructure myth where what we see is those local transactions, but the emphasis for you is the they who initiated yes, the transactions. Exactly. So or if the, you think about the myth, right? It's all private. It's all naturalized. If you think about what looks like it really happened, it's a public project. People are obligated in different ways. It's very relational. It's for public purposes as well as private purposes. I mean, Mm -hmm. the private's in there, but so is the political. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can ask, so what is the difference in design between, you know, money in the Middle Ages and money in the modern world? And mm-hmm. one way to think about that is to say, you know, mm-hmm. if if there's a logic which is basically this is a claim, 
Mm-hmm. This is a credit, right? I mm-hmm. gave it to John, and he can use it as a credit later. In a way, it's a claim against the community mm-hmm. that will exonerate him when he owes the community yeah. something. When right, I was right. describing this to a friend of mine, he said, oh, yeah, Berkshire Bucks. Do you know about Berkshire mm-hmm. Bucks? So, I, I, yeah. yeah, I've heard yeah. about Berkshire Bucks. Yeah. And, um so, yeah, if we think about this as a yeah. claim against the community, does it matter if it's made out of silver or gold or whether it's made yeah. out of paper? And then, and I would say, yeah, it matters in all sorts of ways, but you have to actually really dive in and look at mm-hmm. how a coin system worked and looked at how, look right. at how a paper mm-hmm. right. system right. worked. It doesn't matter necessarily because of its own particularities, but because right. of the institutions within yeah. which right. it is right. made possible. So, so something totally tells me you're that. heading to the Bank of England. Is that right, yeah. Chris? Yes, yeah, you? yes okay. but by way of the medieval. All roads lead to by, the By way of the medieval, yeah. right? So, okay, so just, yeah. just to give a comparative, because it was great to have a baseline. And I spent a lot of time in the book on the medieval because I needed a baseline, right? I needed to see mm-hmm. what had changed. Um, so in a world, so this was looking at centuries and thinking about why did the did the Europeans and many other societies elsewhere use money made of metal for so long because metal it turns out is a really good thing to make a token out of so mm-hmm. if I'm going to give something to John I want it to last mm-hmm. and I also don't want him to be able to counterfeit it I mm-hmm. want it to be hard to refine in a mm-hmm. world where refinements were difficult, right? Technology was limited. So, uh, and it's also easy for for me as an authority to monopolize mm-hmm. that technology. And so, it's also easily divisible into standardized units. And it's yeah. somewhat divisible, mm-hmm. right? So that somewhat. was part of the problem. So, you need so a penny. Make it, what? <laughs> you need a penny. You yeah. need a penny, right? Yeah. So on, on the one hand, we, make, we decide to go for silver and gold because this is, not because it's so easy and rises to the top of barter, but mm. because it's difficult and rare right. and hard to refine so yeah, we can control it. That's mm-hmm. a great argument. We can control it. it. Yeah. And then, and about its divisibility, it's both divisible, but not so divisible. I mean, this was actually part of the difficulty. If mm-hmm. you start thinking about the mm-hmm. differences between different kinds of money, it, it's a really unwieldy money because, um, yeah. and it's a really valuable kind of money. So a penny is worth a lot. Even if, you know, even yeah. if you use silver, not gold, it's worth a yeah. lot. It means, and that affects exchange in all sorts of ways because you know, if you get a penny a day, that's a yeah. lot different than it today. You're paid a hundred dollars. That's ten thousand pennies yeah. a day, right? right? Yeah. So there's much more stuff you can do with a little, you know, at, at the low end of exchange. Yeah. If you have ten thousand pennies yeah, yeah, for yeah. a right. day's work, right. than if you have one penny, right. and just you know, so keeping that in mind as a comparison to what happens when the Bank of England comes along. A last thing about the medieval is. This is really a system in which the crown, the monarchy, with parliament, you know, fighting for certain parts of power over coin, the crown is relating to taxpayers and setting up a system in which people have to go to the mint with silver and they pay for silver. So it costs money to get your coin converted, your silver converted into coin, but you're Mm -hmm. willing to do it both because you need it for taxes and because it's actually so much more convenient to do to get coin that you pay for coin and you put it in circulation. But if you step back and think about that, on the one hand, it both reiterates your point about scarcity, right? This is a a cumbersome money that costs money. So you're going to economize on how much, you know, on getting more of it. Um, it literally takes it money literally to make money. T- it literally <laughs> yeah. takes resources to to, make, yeah. to get money. Yeah. Um, but it's also like this contract between the sovereign and the person who buys the money, right? Yeah. Which is, mm-hmm. you've brought this much silver. I'm going to give you a coin with that much silver. So debasement is really controversial because if we later change the rules, it's going to be controversial. 
having said that, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that debasing the coin was a much better idea than not debasing it because nobody mm. had money at the bottom, right? A mm. penny mm-hmm. was all you had for a wage. So money is hard. And the English don't mm-hmm. debase, uh, are very reluctant to debase. So they're like the most um, give us a Give us a definition of debase, Chris. Um, decreasing the amount of silver in the coin. Mm. So if they had actually decreased the amount of silver in the coin, coin would have been worth less, which right. means you would have had to pay more. You know, you would have had to pay your workers 10 pennies right. for a day's labor. Then they would have had a penny to go to lunch with, right? right? Mm-hmm. right. But they don't. They would mm-hmm. have been right. worth, a, you know, an hour of labor to them, let's say, hardworking people, 10 right. hours of labor. Um, but in, right. they could have gone to lunch right. with Right, so a, a decision mm-hmm. that a government could make now, let's say a Latin American government, could easily right. make a decision to right. do something like that by letting their currency float. But in those days, it was a metal decision. Absolutely, like absolutely. Which isn't to say that people didn't do it. Yeah. They did. The French debased and the Italian city-states debased a lot. Mm-hmm. Ironically, they're sort of famous as economic centers. And partly, that was because they had better, no more exchange of the bond. So they were right, more, right. They were more so fluid more and that yes, made them Yes, they better. had more liquidity. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have all these characteristics that are connected yeah. with this monetary design, including the way people are thinking, right? So they begin to think about debasement. They have political fights. They're oriented around the shape that coin is. So parliament mm-hmm. tries to um, tries to assert certain powers, and it, it's actually hard for parliament to get at the mint, so they have trouble uh, you know, controlling debasement, but they can affect taxation. So there are mm-hmm. all sorts of things that if we wanted to map them out, we could see connected to the way money was being made. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then the Bank of England. So mm-hmm. um, for all sorts of reasons that we won't go into, the, the British are basically experimenting. I mean, everyone's experimenting all the time about different ways to make money. But it's hard for, you know, a lot of experiments don't stick. At the British, at one point in the end of the 17th century... Um, are at war with the French. They're always at war with the French. And they it's a moment of little monarchical credibility because the monarch has um, actually been engaging in forced loans and various other sort of um, devices that upset the population. Anyway, mm-hmm. at a certain point... I'm sure Hillary Mantel will write a book about it. <laughs> so that would be helpful because it's, you know, it's, it has to make the stuff more accessible. Yeah. Um, the British government decides to borrow from a group of investors. So think, you know, this is actually the rise of the investor class. Before this, we'd have big financial families, but now we're going to have a rise of investors. So they charter this group of investors as the Bank of England, Mm -hmm. and they borrow 1.5 million pounds from them. Mm -hmm. But instead of taking the money in silver or gold coin, they take the money in paper banknotes. And they spend the money... And the money says, the money is a private promise by the Bank of England to pay silver coin, gold coin. So if you had a bank note that you got from the government, you could go to the Bank of England and ask for silver or gold coin. Mm-hmm. But you actually didn't have to, because if you just held on to the bank note, you could eventually, it takes time to work this out, but eventually you could use it to pay your taxes. Right. It was kind of hard for the government to deny yeah. that because yeah. they'd given it to you, right? Yeah. right? Well, that's now, the concept uh, of legal tender. That's right? the concept of legal tender, exactly. Yeah. So if you think about this, it is the story of money's invention all over again. Um, yeah, that was going to be my question. What's the relationship between this and, say, equities, right, or stocks? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so that's a, a, a you know, really close one, that mm-hmm. stocks, it was a very, there were stocks before that, but the trading in them was erratic and by only mm-hmm. a small portion of the population. Right. Yeah. Now you've got the... You know, according to the way people are thinking about it now, the government debt's kind of like ballast. Mm-hmm. 
So mm-hmm. bonds today still mm-hmm. are um, a much larger percentage of the capital market than stocks, although right. stocks are more famous. It's bonds right. that are really doing that stabilizing work, and government bonds, so treasuries in the right. news today, right? Yeah. So treasuries are doing all this stabilizing work. Right. Um, and the same thing happens then. So mm-hmm. you get, and the invention of capital markets, so there's a, a the historian who's who works on them really thinks that this South Sea moment is the big bang mm-hmm. of capital markets, including stock markets. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think that's a great time to pivot to the second part of our conversation, which is that so the secret motto of Recall This Book is if it's in the 21st century, you can always find it in the 19th century. (laughs) So we uh, so now it's not secret. One thing. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Tattooed on the back of the neck. Um, So, Chris, you you wanted to talk and we would love to talk with you about your current work, which is bringing your early modern argument up into that explosive moment around 1800. um, and Britain once again kind of leapfrogged ahead of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's exciting to us is that you, and I want to quote from a recent article of yours on your own website, the Just Money website. So you propose, quote, that a series of institutional innovations engineered by the British in the early modern period led to an explosion of productive liquidity. Uh, and I think we should call the episode an explosion of productive liquidity. I love that. Uh, An enormous increase in the money stock and near money instruments. That explosion of liquidity Fed exchange expanded wage labor, fueled effective tax collection and law enforcement and eased access to credit for even for those unable to tap accumulated savings. So so the hope is that I I would love to ask you to kind of unpack that idea and we can reveal now that the second text we're going to be mm-hmm. talking about today, um, even though I was hoping we were going to talk about medieval giant turnip tales, but in fact, <laughs> instead, we're going to be talking about Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So we're heading for kind of, you know, the, the landed gentry of the early yeah. 19th century. And um, so, yeah, Chris, can you can you yeah. talk us through so the So I'll preface it by saying this is yeah. speculative argument. I'm yep. very much in the research stages okay. of it. Um, but... The connection to what we were just talking about is money creation. Mm -hmm. If you think about the Bank of England, the thing that's striking about it is that the British are, you know, they're stumbling into it. I wouldn't say they know what they're doing. They're improvising their way in the face of kind of financial emergencies, and they stumble into this way of expanding the money supply. And that expansion of the money supply really takes off in the end of, you know, a century later. So at first the mm-hmm. Bank of England, you know, they're just trying to work it out. They're still issuing fairly large denomination bills. It's all still pretty elite and pretty mm-hmm. narrow. Mm-hmm. But, but we get a big expansion in government debt. And towards the end of the century, a whole slew of new country banks come mm-hmm. online, yeah. right? And these are... The end of the 18th 18th century, century, right? Right. So into the 19th, and they're going to really come into their own in the 19th. So what seems to happen, at least this is what I'm looking into, is that big merchant families and, and, you know, sort of proto-manufacturers and little, you know, it could be handicrafts, but wealthier families begin to give out Maybe they're looking over their shoulder at the Bank of England, right? They begin to give out their own banknotes. Mm-hmm. And again, they're using the sort of credit idea of issue a credit, take it back. So that you might pay your workers with banknotes because you don't have enough mm-hmm. gold mm-hmm. coin or, and, you know, and it's too big a wage yeah. anyway. You pay with banknotes and then you take it back at the for company products. Yeah. So right? this is like company mm-hmm. script it's like, like yeah. a coal mining script. town It's like or something. Com- company yeah. script. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, people have, you know, people have always been experimenting with substitutes because money's been hard to come yeah. by. But this time... They 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 developed a system 
in a very comprehensive way. Everyone's doing these, making these small um, distributions of banknotes, and big um, wealthy families begin to take each other's banknotes, mm-hmm. right, and set them off against each other. Mm-hmm. And they also denominate them in the national money, so mm-hmm. in the penny or the pound. Oh, they didn't mm-hmm. used to do that. Uh, I think they did sometimes, but sometimes they didn't. Uh-huh. And they also, but the, these are convertible into that. Yeah. Mm. So, for example, say you pay your soul, your farmers with, um, say, say you're a big family and you pay, pay your suppliers, your wool mm-hmm. suppliers with company, with banknotes. Mm-hmm. They're denominated in the penny and the pound. And then a farmer comes to you and says, could you give me an advance? You give the farmer and he gives you a long-term bill. Bill of called a bill of exchange that says you know I agree to pay you such you give them the local banknotes, but when that bill comes due, it's paid the the farmer is paid by whoever by say an exporter in Bank of England notes, mm-hmm. and then the farmer the bill gets paid in Bank of England notes. So you there are there's this kind of hatchwork of exchange that now includes these small country banks and their banknotes yeah. and mm-hmm. and the national currency and and there's an enormous um, ex, you know explosion of productivity yeah. because now we can actually pay people in small denominations yeah. and mm-hmm. these country banknotes are really yeah. small denominations a shilling right mm-hmm. two shillings mm-hmm. not 10 pounds anymore not yeah. 100 pounds so i just was reading richard rhodes's energy which is like many books about the Industrial Revolution, but, you know, it's really great on steam engines and stuff uh-huh. like that. So what what is the implication for your intervention? I mean, just to take it, yeah. I mean, to sort of play it out. Yeah. Is it that this stuff goes, there's a, there's a kind of this is going hand in glove with those other innovations occurring? Or are you actually arguing, no, the, the thing, the the banking change is the important one, and the other things wouldn't happen if it, you didn't have the banking. It change. depends on how how. Okay, yeah, what you how find. sort of fair enough. I, I, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, okay. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how you know have as I, as I continue. Right, <laughs> you know, it depends on the time of day. Yeah. Right, how sort of yeah. I want to be. But the old the story that it's you know all. I'll just make one connection to the beginning of our talk. Right. Yeah. The traditional way of thinking about the industrial revolution is all in real terms, right? So it's yeah. an industry right. you know that comes about because of coal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or it's because of colonization. Right. Right. Or it's because of scientific thought. Right. right. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. Um, and they're all real explanations, real in quotes, right? Yeah. For, for you know, in some mm-hmm. ways, they're like the barter story. We think it's yeah. all real stuff that right. we've reorganized. Uh-huh. Mm. And uh, and I'm sure that part of it is real. Mm-hmm. Right? But I'm also sure that part of it is. Is about liquidity, right? right. Is about yeah. the fact that we've now figured out how to organize value and circulate yeah. it around now, all the way down to these levels, retail levels. Chris, you and I talked a little bit about this before because I'm really interested in like flash forward 30 years from Austin till you get to people like Gaskell and Trollope mm-hmm. and Charlotte Bronte. There's all sorts of other arrangements of the relationship between the new industrial wealth right. and the old landed wealth. And one mm-hmm. thing is that you can think about investment in land investment in the 3% or the 4% and then things like railway stocks. Right. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I mean there's mm-hmm. lots of things you can mm-hmm. you can speculate mm-hmm. in mines, you can buy a mm-hmm. railway stock in Trollope, you can buy a railway stock in America, mm-hmm. but it's basically railways are the paradigm of the new less reliable but potentially more lucrative investment. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but I really like I mean the point that you're making is that seems really important is that that if you think about a rentier class as depending 
on their land, but also on debt channeled through the central government. Like yeah. That. In other words, there's like a kind of invisible duality there that Austin sort of naturalizes as yeah. the same yeah. thing, but it's not yeah. really the same thing. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and yeah. it seems to have less um, moral valence than... I mean, the yes. sort of classic opposition is between land and trade, right? Right. And those yes. are really strongly morally coded and culturally coded. Well, but the 4% isn't so much. Like, it just seems kind of, um, at least narratively, it doesn't seem like there's a strong um, valence to it. In, mm-hmm. Although it's going to become controversial, right? So Marx mm-hmm. does make it controversial. I mean, yeah. people are worried about debt and are trying to figure yeah. out what the effects of debt are. Mm-hmm. So Marx will, you know, Marx rails against it and says, this is a way of, if we think about it, if if the government's relying yeah. on debt, yeah. it's paying the wealthy for making advances to the government right. as opposed to taxing and, them. Yeah, but what I mean is that it's not... It's not linked to social class. It's sort of a way, yes, and maybe this is connected neutral. to the, the yeah, liquidity yeah. question, is it's sort of a way of opting out of this opposition of well, between wealth by land so, or wealth by trade. Well, so I was actually going to ask, I was going to ask Chris about whether you're interested in William Cobbett at all. Do you know that guy? The I don't know enough. Rural Rides. Know. He's like a, yeah. so he's an agrarian populist. and. In a way, he is, I mean, he's a little bit Trumpy, honestly, but he's, I mean, because he gets extremely racist later in life, but his denunciation <laughs> of the great win of London, W-E-N of London, is mm. all about the rentier class mm. living off of borrowed. When is well, like a boil so, or something? When is a boil, yeah. right, exactly. So there's this whole idea that the natural lifeblood of England exists in these in this in rural England, which is gradually being depopulated. This he's saying this in 1810. Mm. This is not the height of the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. But the people are living off pensions. That's a really important part of it. You know, the government mm-hmm. just flat out gives money to you if you're an officer. But I, I think right. he also... Or if you're deni- a civil servant of some kind. he also denounces right? yeah. basically playing the markets. And that's where the anti-Semitism that I was referring to comes in mm-hmm. because the Jew then becomes metonymical right. for that. But he's actually denouncing the banking system in toto. And right. the Jew is just... Jew, you know, Jewish bankers just become like a convenient right, right. symbol of right. people who live in money. Well, and then they're also in the lower, in like the Jewish money lenders who you go to when you can't yeah. go to the bank. That's right? true. But I guess the thing I wanted to bring out about it is the notion of the tainted quality of trafficking in money itself. You know, right. that the money is what's the contaminant. Mm-hmm. Because if we just had, you know, like you e. think Thompson's that point about the... just price of bread, you know, that mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah. as long as you're just, you're working the land and eating the bread that comes off of the land, you don't have that transactional Sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, in that it's sense, sort of I feel Wall like Street versus Main right. Street. So in that sense, I guess I'm saying there's but e- is even there a, in the Romantic period there is a moral valence. But is there a moral valence for the people whose income is coming off of the four percents, or is there a moral valence for the people who are, you know, architects <laughs> and you know? Well, I mean, in the I mean, text, I mean, like in the in the like, do you know, people think of themselves as unjustly profiting from? Well, like if you read in Austin. Um, you know, his land, you know, about Pemberley estate and, you know, how much his tenants, Darcy's tenants respect him as opposed to the possible scorn that he might have for Bennett, you know, Elizabeth Bennett's uncle who's in trade or maybe he's a lawyer. I can't remember. Um, and then you read about, you know, so-and-so getting their money from the 4%. There is no sense that that, that doesn't give you any information about their class position, or I don't read it as such. Although I think there's a lot of criticism of speculation, right. you know, in stocks, and to some extent, discomfort with bonds. So this would just mm-hmm. be, this seems like a great avenue to investigate, yes, right? Because yes. one thing, it, another 
it gives us an opportunity to look back at the medieval, right? When mm-hmm. when making interest was a vice. Right? Mm-hmm. So, make, right. you know, interest on money was usury mm-hmm. um, yeah. with all sorts of scholastic clauses, yeah. but it was usury. And that's right. still part of Islamic law now, And it's right? still part of Islamic sure. law, yeah. and it's still part of, you know, British law until, you know, it sort of falls apart, right. as, you know, starting in the 17th century. Right. But, you know, part of what's going on is that people are having trouble adjusting to a world in which, if you think about the Bank of England, Mm-hmm. The motive force, the institutionalized incentive was profit, mm. right? We're, in, we're now institutionalizing as the government profit to the investors to right. make our money supply. So here's the question. You know, that's is huge. The, is that sense of that speculation, in, does that include government debt where there is a clear it's sense a of a question. kind of I don't think I have. I mean, there's certain pamphlets that are attacking. Or, you know. Yeah. So... Uh, um, you know, here I have that. to, the, yeah, the early pamphlets that I'm more familiar with from my book, mm. they're controversial, right? So some people mm. are saying, this is speculation, this is, you shouldn't pay for money. Some people mm. are really nailing mm. it yeah. as mm-hmm. a vice. Right. And other people are defending it. George Downing, who comes up with the idea of Downing mm-hmm. Street, right? Mm. He's in the 1660s. Oh. <laughs> he's arguing that, you know, this is brilliant to make self-interest and patriotism come together mm-hmm. yeah right? but it so it is still controversial then i'm not i don't know i haven't gotten yeah. far enough yeah. into yeah, yeah. the 19th but, century yeah, stuff I, I, to, I, to realize totally fair. To yeah. know. i, I want to make a couple of historical footnotes in response to your point elizabeth just one is that i do think within the world of jane austen people who honestly work their land even if that means being being the landowner like if you think about mr knightley and emma yes it is valorized that he yes. puts his yes. like he yes. puts work equity i won't say sweat equity but he puts like work equity yes. into his land and all the way up through george Eliot and middlemarch you can see people getting valorized or Rod- for, roger carberry yeah, even if you yeah, even now. if you own the land there is something to be said for having that direct relationship that yep. gets morally valorized and that is among the gentry even. yeah totally so that suggests that there is a distinction that people but make. what i was saying was not that that was positively valorized or that trade is negatively, but that the 4% seems to be neutral. Yeah. So it would be really interesting to me to ask, I mean, so I'm putting, taking notes mentally as you guys are talking (laughs) for this research project, right? It would be very interesting for me to think about, I think, to look at the budding ideology of people in the countryside as they get more cash, right? Yeah. I think that's a great question. How that is figuring into their... Radical. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I really do want to connect that in some way that I hope to talk to Peter Brown about because Peter Brown talks about the rise of liquidity in the late antiquity. Like there's mm-hmm. just a lot more specie that mm-hmm. the Roman Empire just had more gold on hand. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he his argument is that actually really changes the conceptions of the possibilities of charitable giving once mm-hmm. you have the gold as a form of munificence. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. yeah. so is this a point? Can we talk about Sanditon for a minute? Oh, yeah, totally. We can. <laughs> we're, we're getting very close to our end. But, okay. yeah, let's talk about Sanditon. So I just wanted to, yeah. to point quick, out, I, I'm I, really intrigued. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so should I just fill in? This is the PBS yes. series, which you can now stream on your PBS app or BBC, I think, um, which is based on an unfinished sort of 45-page stub by Jane Austen called Sanditon, oh. which is about capitalist speculation. It's about building a new place called Sanditon that's going to be like the new Bournemouth or the new Brighton. Okay. And uh, so there's just recently a very, very 21st century dramatization mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, so I was completely intrigued that she, at the end of her life, which, so what would this be, 18... 16. 16 or so, yeah. had 
had thought to plot out a story that involved entrepreneurs as opposed yeah. to landowners or even people living mm-hmm. on government yeah. debt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems to me to connect in some ways what we've been talking about to the railroads, right? That, that now there are all these entrepreneurs who are working with this burst of liquidity who have possibilities of getting cash. So if you think about these banks... What you need to do to get cash is walk in with a promise that you'll be productive. Yeah. As opposed to think back to Middle Ages, you have to actually have silver already if you want to get coin. Yeah. Right? It's mm. an amazing difference. So yeah. you can borrow on a promise of productivity, yeah. and then you can try to and you can pay your workmen. So remember yeah. in the so yeah. Elizabeth, when you see the series, mm-hmm. there's a whole question about how to pay the workmen, but there's not a question that you actually are going to pay the workmen in some daily wage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so I'm very interested in how the retail cash, the development of retail cash, which I think is extremely yeah. important, is mm-hmm. actually informing Jane Austen and, and is part yeah. of the Sanditon yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, Do you know yeah. that Margot Finn book, The Character of Credit? It's a great yeah, book about, yeah, yeah, yeah like working class. Yeah. Like It's like about working class. Uh, it's basically how people use pawnbrokers. Mm. Yes. Like, because a pawnbroker is a way of borrowing without borrowing, yeah. basically. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. great. I think that is a good moment for us to pivot to our okay. recallable books, especially since we're mentioning um, the, the railroads. So, um, you know, the recallable book is um, a, a book that if you enjoyed this conversation, you're going to also uh, get profit from, uh, you know, doing going off and doing further reading on your own. So, um, Chris, do you want to start us off with your So I'll book? start with two recallable Great. books. One is Piketty, which mm-hmm. I think is yes. who, you know, it's just, he's just an interesting thinker. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. he has all sorts of data and, but he also intersperses that's intersperses that with a narrative that's provocative and that makes you think about things Mm -hmm. like the relationship between land. So, Elizabeth, when you said earlier, part of what it reminded me of in his book is, you know, he want, he's interested in the fact that land decreases as a force of as a form of wealth and housing mm-hmm. increases. Mm-hmm. As a, mm-hmm. So yeah. we see all these trends in Piketty and mm-hmm. it's not that we don't have to go yeah. that, back that far to recall it. And the but, book you're recommending is Capital in the Cap- 21st and Century. Capital, right. Yeah. Although he has it, this new one, Capitalism right. and Ideology. I haven't read it yet. It's so. a thousand pages long. Okay. We'll have <laughs> the to English translation only comes out next month. Okay. I'm a little scared. So we're not yeah. behind yeah. already. No. Yeah. <laughs> and the other the other book or the other yeah, it is a book and it's also a movie is The Wizard of Oz. So there's yes. all sorts Very of controversy uh, over exactly how we interpret that, but it seems to me fun to engage the possibility that Frank Baum, the writer, is is in part writing about the politics of his day, and that includes the gold standard. Yes. So yeah. that we can think about the gold standard developed during the 19th century as the British sought to use convertibility into gold coin mm-hmm. as a way to discipline money production. Right. Yeah. So the money production that we're talking about that is so explosive, they thought maybe they could discipline it by making it have to be convertible to gold coin. Mm-hmm. And this caused all sorts of Mm-hmm. drama in the late 19th century as many countries went on to the gold standard and then had relations with each other that were inflected and constrained through that exchange system. Um, and it also it also constrained money production in ways that made exchange harder, right, that right. were deflationary. So I think it's interesting to think of the yellow brick road as mm-hmm. possibly a reference to the gold oh standard. Yes. It leads well, yeah, to the I mean, Emerald was, City. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he was, uh, he was a Bryanite, right? He was a William uh, actually, Jennings Actually, I think, I think he was not a Bryanite. Really? Or, or he, uh, there's or, controversy about okay. that, um, which is part of what makes it difficult to interpret. Mm. So but I, yeah. I, I had read somewhere that Brian was um, the cowardly lion. 
Oh. So maybe he just was huh. critical maybe. while having okay. some. Okay. But he definitely seems to be, maybe he's not officially a Bryanite, but he definitely, it definitely seems like it's about the way that farmers represented by Kansas yes. are screwed yes. by yes. the gold standard. Or by the gold standard. Right? And, so. and that could absolutely be one interpretation, and she's yeah. wearing silver slippers, apparently. Right, and, she's know. wearing oh. silver slippers in the, in in the, the real, book. In the yeah. book. Yeah. No right. kidding. Um, wow. and, and I think the Emerald City, you know, some people say that's the greenbacks, and, and the mm-hmm. greenbacks, which were paper money of the Civil War, were yeah. therefore a sham, but other people say that's capitalism, and that was a sham. Yeah. So, right, I, I think... It yeah. would be fun to try to figure out what The Wizard of Oz was all about. Yeah, yeah. That's, awesome. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, so mine is a story by Tolstoy called The Forged Coupon, which I think kind of exemplifies the other kinds of accounts that you're – or it's sort of a description of the investment in um, the kind of emotional and uh, sort of religious and, and, and agentive investment in money – that you're describing in some of these other accounts. Um, the story is about a, um, a coupon a, that a teenager doesn't get enough money from his father, and so he f- he's a kind of wealthy teenager, and so he, he um, forges a coupon and he passes it off to someone to get a picture frame and to get change in order to get... So he, he basically you know, runs a little scam. And then this scam, the coupon goes on its way, but also the scam kind of goes on its way, and it, it opens up these cracks to um, sort of destruction, both through people who later try to pass off the coupon and then get arrested and their lives are ruined and they become, they turn to drink or they see that this has happened successfully and this disillusions them about the morality of the rich Mm. and therefore they become thieves and so there's all these ways in which it kind of, you know, cracks open something that that creates all these um, Mm. terrible outcomes, especially in part one, part two, there's some some redemption. Mm. Um, But I think it really speaks to these kind of questions about money as connected and this idea of money as a kind of protagonist as connected to to class to morality to um family other kinds of things Mm. that's great that actually sounds a little bit like stevenson's the bottle imp which is all Mm -hmm. about like yeah that possibility of how much you can sell something for as the the problem is its saleability like the Mm -hmm. curse is saleability yeah that's corrupt the corruption that goes along with that well we all picked so that is that's a late 19th century story right Mm -hmm. do you know what it's from what the date is I don't. But it's, no, yeah, I but I mean, yeah. it's definitely, yeah, latter 19th. And, and, yes. and Wizard of Oz must be like 1890s? Yeah, 19th, something yeah. right around the yeah, turn so of the century. Yeah. So, mine is, so mine is from 1901 also, okay. which is Frank Norris's The Octopus, um, which is um, the first part of a planned trilogy that we only wrote two of them. But he, I love Frank Norris. He's this incredible naturalist writer. And one of the things the naturalists did, which I really like, is that they materialize everything. Like everything mm-hmm. turns back into its solid incarnation. And so it's about somebody mm-hmm. trying to corner the market in wheat. In fact, um, D.W. Griffith did an amazing film, a short film, like one of his earliest films, which is loosely based on it, called A Corner in Wheat. Mm-hmm. And what the film, spoiler alert, what the film and the novel have in common is that they both end with somebody who see, who thinks that they are enormously wealthy drowning, literally drowning in their own wealth because they get killed by being having wheat dumped on them uh-huh, in a silo. Right. Yeah, so yeah. that the wheat 
is the hardened form of the money that you've unjustly accumulated. Mm -hmm. So it's a just price argument, which I think is natural, is a kind of naturalist response to the sense of capitalism mm -hmm. gone out of control mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century. It'd be interesting to think that with Baum, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because yeah. it, it's like they're both critiques for sure, but mm -hmm. the naturalist critique is like so gritty and icky and sweaty and awful, and the mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz critique is so, you know, sweet and angelic and crystalline <laughs> yeah. and uh, sparkly. Yeah, sparkly. Yeah, so it's just nice to think about this kind of the sordid and the sublime critiques mm. of money and how they work together. So, and yeah. we not only have to read the books, we have to go to the movies too. Oh, yes. totally. <laughs> and that we'll put up a link to that movie because it okay. it it watches. It's yeah. still great. And there's actually a movie movies. based on the Forge Coupon called, oh my God. called wow. also have a film by God. Robert we have Bresson, to Take over so. Coolidge Corner and have yeah. a money night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, Chris, thank you so much. I mean, this is amazing. Uh, yes, thank you, Chris. It's been really fun. Yeah. Thank you for um, having me. And so I will just say in closing that Recall This Book is hosted by John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing is done by Claire Ogden. Website design and social media is done by Kaliska Ross, who I see. There she is. And we always want to hear from you with uh, your comments, criticism, and suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media or our website. And finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You may be interesting, interested in checking out past conversations with, for example, Quinn Slobodian on the rise of ethno-nationalism, interviews with Shishian Liu, Zadie Smith, Samuel Delaney, and Mike Lee, and certainly look for the remaining episodes of our season on Wealth and Money with Peter Brown, Mark Blythe, and perhaps Piketty. So from all of us here at RTB, thank you for listening. 